You've likely heard this quote about life or something close to it, often credited to Ralph Waldo Emerson. It goes like this, life is about the journey, not the destination. Now, if you think about it, it makes perfect sense because you know what the final destination for life is, so it sort of makes sense to focus on the journey. Well, when it comes to travel, the same mantra could and probably should be applied because it's really what's between those two points, between your departure point and the destination where the adventure lies. So choosing your route may in fact be the most important part of planning your trip. Not necessarily the exact route, but deciding a rough route, maybe the states that you're going to pass through, the provinces, the borders you're going to cross. That will create your adventure. And that's what Andy Benfield did when he decided to ride his motorcycle from Delhi, to India, to Rangoon in Myanmar or Burma. Andy chose a route that was to see him through a remote northern India, Nepal, Bhutan, and many other places, including a, a border crossing that's been closed for 50 years. He intended to be the first person to cross that border, along with his passenger. He's riding a Royal Enfield, and he had no mechanical skills, no sat phone, no camping gear. He did have that passenger, a passenger that he, he had trouble getting along with, yet at the same time, he was trying to impress her with his travel skills. The route would see them into the rebel-held country, seldom seen by visitors, where a visitor stands out like a tree in the plains. They would end up in a fairy tale kingdom that has a, a large national park for the protection of the Yeti. And a place that has enshrined a part of the body that most of us think of as having nothing to do with religion. My name's Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. We got a good one for you. Before we get going, I want to thank some sponsors that helped bring this episode of Adventure Rider Radio to you. The first one is Max BMW Motorcycles. They've been doing it since 2002. That's Outfitting Adventure Riders. And they have got a load, I mean the full load, of parts and accessories online that they can ship to your door. You order online. It's a great way to get your parts. MaxBMW.com. Get their e-rider newsletter. It's free. MaxBMW.com. That's M-A-X-B-M-W.com. And Green Chili Adventure Gear, making American-made heavy-duty innovative luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into luggage using the strapping system. Um, great systems. As a matter of fact, all the stuff they make is super tough. I've tried tons of it myself. The website, greenchiliadv.com. That's greenchiliadv.com. Best Rest Products is where the number one tire pump in the business for us motorcyclists comes from. It's called the Cycle Pump, made in the USA, has lifetime warranty. They also distribute the Google Tech filters for North America. The website, cyclepump.com. That's Best Rest Products at cyclepump.com. I'm Simon Manning. I'm Phil. Ted Simon. Jamie Coach Drive. Sterling Marie.
this is the kind of trip that is almost guaranteed to generate some kind of adventure. Andy Benfield, from the UK but living in Burma at the time, decided to attempt riding his motorcycle from India to Burma. It hadn't been done before. The route that Andy came up with would take him through the Himalayan mountains, on the way passing through some very remote and at times very unfriendly places in India, into Nepal, into the magical kingdom of Bhutan, and then across a border that had been closed for 50 years and into Burma. So what could go wrong with this trip? Well, everything. I mean, if you take into account the outlaws, the rebels, the headhunters, the yeti, and some seriously deadly roads, oh, and and the paramilitary, the not-so-friendly kind, the fact that Andy didn't even have his border crossing confirmed when he left, not to mention the fact that he was what many people would call completely unprepared. He had no mechanical skills, he couldn't even fix a flat tire, no backup vehicle, no sat phone, and on top of all of this, Andy's motivation, or at least a big part of his motivation for this trip, was to impress his passenger. Oh yeah, Andy had a pillion, his girlfriend. The idea being that, since she wasn't so hooked on him just yet, that Andy could lead her through this remote adventure, and in doing so, become the knight in shining armor that would sweep her off her feet. Oh yeah, and this was Andy's first big motorcycle trip. Seriously, how much more can you pile on? Let the adventure begin. I'm Andy Benfield. Uh, I'm originally from the UK and I work on uh, giving advice to developing countries on poverty reduction. Andy, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Thank you very much. Great to be here. What is your, um, what's your favorite bike? That's a very easy question to answer, as probably unlike anyone else you've, you've ever interviewed, I've only really ever ridden one, which is the uh, Royal Enfield Bullet. The Royal Enfield Bullet. Now, see, I knew this. That's why I asked you the question right off the bat, um, because, <laughs> because I know it's your favorite bike. I didn't actually realize it's the only bike that you've ridden, though. So how long have you been riding for? Uh, I've been wanting to ride since I was a kid, you know, and uh, I'd always been attracted to these kind of old style, classic style uh, road bikes and uh, never quite had the guts uh, to get on one. Um, And it was only when I'd moved to India for work, um, I guess around 2005, that I'd seen these uh, these bikes on the streets, and they're called Royal Enfields, and my last name is Benfield, and it, you know it just seemed kind of too much of a coincidence <laughs> that someone was trying to tell me something here <laughs> that it was about time to start. So I actually I learned to ride uh, in in India in uh, in Delhi back then. Is this a love of the Royal Enfield, or is this I mean aside from the the name similarity with your last name, is it a love for Royal Enfield, or just the fact that that's the only bike that's available for you? I think it was it was that style of bike, you know. There was, I mean, I think it was back in in 1985. There was a, a a song called "Take on Me" by the band Aha, which I believe got re-released recently. And in it, in the music video, I remember watching it. I would have been about ten years old, and they had these, yeah, these old style bikes, the big round front uh, front headlight, you know, that kind of 1940s look, the kind of thing you'd see in a in an old, I don't know, World War Two movie or something like that. And that just that style of bike, particularly, I mean, the idea of riding attracted me, but it, it wasn't, you know, having a fast bike or really kind of speeding along. It, it, it was very much that kind of quite uh, 
large and kind of nice sounding, uh, to use the technical terms, uh, road bike that had appealed. And when I saw those, uh, a lot of them in India, um, yeah, I was, I was really sold on the idea of getting on one of those. And, you know, this would be like a, a touring bike, a bike to go, um, on an adventure on. So it, it wasn't so much about going down to the shops and having a bike every day. It was, it was wanting to get out there and, and have an adventure on one of these things. It was things like, uh, you know, watching Ewan McGregor's, uh, documentary he did, uh, the long way round, seeing those kind of long trips on bikes also that, um, that really appealed to something in me, I guess. A traveling man. So you, you wanted that, that look looking like you're doing something, which it really, if you think about it, it's not all that unusual because nowadays, I mean, how many people buy pre-faded jeans? <laughs> so you, right. you get the look before you've actually accomplished what it was you, you want to do. Yes, exactly. Very much that. And I didn't know if I was capable of, of you know, really doing the uh, the long adventures, but I at least wanted that image. And I remember kind of getting the bike in India and then getting those kind of classic old style, you know, leather saddlebags on the back and wanting people to think I probably had a sleeping bag in one and a, and a bottle of bourbon in the other. <laughs> right. Which adds to the whole feeling as you're riding down the road. Was your trip from Delhi to Rangoon was that your first big like long motorcycle trip I'd done things just uh, in India of of you know a couple of weeks that kind of thing but I had never kind of crossed over an international border and you know that that was uh yeah something I'd really not uh, embarked upon. And, the, you know, the route from Delhi uh, to get through to Burma to Rangoon was a, a, a particularly kind of challenging one that no one had done before. So it was it was certainly a kind of another level of adventure for me than, say, just driving around relatively, let's say, well-known parts of India or, or Nepal, which I'd done before when I lived in Nepal, but to cross borders and, and to go really through some very kind of remote and a little bit dodgy areas was, yeah, was certainly very much a new thing. You're, you're from the UK. You don't live there now. Uh, that's right. Yeah, I left about twenty years ago, and I've been I've been kind of living in different parts, mainly of Africa and, and Asia, since then for work. Yeah, I've always been intrigued by personality types like yours, if I can say it this way, <laughs> because you have this thing about I can tell. You know, you have no problem moving around from place to place, no problem making a new home, which you've done a bunch of times. What makes you like that? Like, did you start out? You know, when you were a kid, is your family travelers? Are you heading off on vacation? I mean, what is it that brings that out in you? Well, it's funny you should ask that because I'm I'm back in London for a couple of days now and visiting my mother, who always asks me when I'm going to come back eventually and, and live back in the UK. And I tell her it's kind of her fault because uh, when I was when I was young, she used to read uh, diaries she had from when her and my father lived uh, in Australia back when they first got married. And they had a combi van and they used to kind of tour around Australia. And I remember also the stories of her meeting some uh, some guys who were biking around Australia and how exciting she found that. And I, I used to love hearing those kind of stories as, as a kid. And I guess, yeah, I just thought there was there was a bigger world out there. There was something else. And I, you know, I really wanted to uh, explore that and, and get out there. So, I mean, as soon as I was, you know, kind of 18 and I was, you know, legally able to kind of escape and no one could tell me what to do. That's uh, that's kind of what I did. Your mom keeps asking you when you're going or if this is it. Are you back now? Because she fully expects that's going to happen someday. 
She, yes, and let's you know, let's hope she doesn't hear this, and she can carry on. <laughs> she can carry on uh, believing that. But I, yeah, I think she would. Uh, she would like that. So I don't. I don't tell her all the stories because I think otherwise she'd uh, she'd be a bit more worried. And certainly when I started riding the bikes, I guess for a lot of mothers, that's the thing. You know, bikes are perceived as pretty dangerous, and uh, in somewhere like well, like India or kind of South Asia in general, I mean, driving is um, you know with no disrespect, uh, pretty, pretty atrocious. So it does add a, a, a kind of new level of, 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 uh, of danger as well. Yeah. <laughs> what is the, the backstory behind, you know, I want to talk to you about this trip that you did from Delhi to Rangoon because, uh, you, you're, uh, ostensibly the first person to do it on a motorcycle. Mm. Um, and, and maybe, maybe because you look at it, you think, well, why <laughs> other, other than in the seeking adventure, yeah. um, it's not a direct route. It's, it's a convoluted route that you took, yeah. um, full of, um, dangers and, and difficulties. Mm. So what's the backstory to it? What gets you to a point where you think I'm going to ride a motorcycle on a long trip? Yeah, so I had I I was living then in in Burma and uh, I still had a bike. I had a Royal Enfield uh, back in India, back in Delhi, and I was kind of storing it. Had been with a friend for a number of years, and yeah, I was in Burma, in love with this country, is a beautiful place, and thinking it would be great to have a a bike here. But they just had kind of these little kind of Chinese or Indian made kind of 100, 150 cc things. So very different from a Royal Enfield. And so I started thinking, well, you know, I could try and ship my bike in from, from India, but wow, I mean, riding it across would really be quite interesting. And, uh, as you say, it's, it's a, a kind of very little traveled route. Um, and when I started looking at it, it was no one had really done it since uh, the 1950s, because then Burma had been closed down, military regime took over, and you couldn't really get across uh, the border. And looking at the places it would go through, um, and you know, the, the, the kind of route one could take, it, it just seemed it would be quite fascinating in an area of the world that was had kind of been shut off for a long time, but was was starting to open up. Um, and so would probably be changing quite a lot in the near future. So I, I thought it would be good to, to see it then. At the same time, I was feeling I was, you know, I was getting a bit older, a bit less adventurous. I mean, I don't want to use the phrase midlife crisis, but, you know, it, it had been a while since I'd, uh, I'd been traveling without a hotel reservation for the night or, I don't know, been on the roof of a local bus or this kind of thing. Um but yes, lastly, uh, which is the most personal confession, um, I had recently started uh, seeing someone, a young lady, and I, I guess as the motivation for many such trips across history may be, uh, it it was kind of trying to, um, yeah, impress her. Uh, I'd always felt there was a bit of distance between us. I was looking for something that would kind of bring us close together. And she was a, a very particular and kind of interesting person and very adventurous. So I, you know, I started mentioning this to her and I saw the spark in her eye and I, I saw, wow, this could, this could really be the thing that, uh, you know, if we did this trip together, um, this would really make a difference. And, you know, she would definitely, uh, fall into a swoon and we would, we would live, uh, happily ever after. Always kind of risky to, um, <laughs> I, I guess to be showing off in a way, it's something you really haven't done before <laughs> because you're packing up the two of you that's on a motorcycle to head off to places. I assume that you haven't been to any of these places or most of these places. Is that the case? 
Uh, yeah, so I'd been, you know, I'd been to a couple of the the countries you passed through before, but not those particular areas and not along those those uh, routes either. So it was, yeah. I mean, the lack of preparedness. I mean, you know, in 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 England we have this kind of tradition of the bumbling amateur, and it was it was very much that. I mean, although I could ride the bike, I have zero mechanical experience and i mean I, I don't want your listeners to switch off now but i i, I don't even know how to fix a, a puncture i confess uh we we didn't have any you know protective gear any proper motorcycling gear or any camping gear if we got kind of um stuck out there only about kind of five words of local language skill um and yeah just no experience of of uh, kind of doing that thing before so it was um yeah a, a kind of complete lack of uh, of decent <laughs> of decent preparation to be honest what, what's the bumbling around you said that you, you have a thing in england yeah i guess because in, in england we have this tradition of the kind of bumbling amateur and um, you know as part of that kind of self-deprecating english thing that's uh, this tradition of just giving things a go um and you know maybe not kind of overly preparing um just kind of seeing what happens and somehow kind of making your your way through and that with a you know with a bit of pluck and a stiff upper lip one will somehow uh one will, one, one will somehow make it because one is english i think that's you know there's a <laughs> there's something in our dna there i don't know if that's really a good thing but it's it's that but but andy usually when somebody's doing a trip like this i mean there's yeah. some preparation that goes into it first of all you got to look at your route you got to figure out your visas yeah. um how much money you're going to need those sorts of things maybe even planning some places to stay but also you would think is if you're going to places that are remote yeah I, I don't know learn something about mechanics i mean at least learn to fix a flat yeah i mean there was i was i was trying you know to to prepare certain things and certainly the, the visa thing was an issue but we we set off uh without a, a visa to get through the final border which was the india burma border which had been closed for for many years we kind of written asking for special permission to the Burmese government, but it hadn't come through. So we, we set off without that. And for like crossing into Nepal from India, we we knew we could probably get permission at the border, but it was whether they'd let the bike over or not was was not particularly clear. But in, in these places, I mean, it's it's not necessarily straightforward, you know, to get information, uh, to get correct information about what's happening, things about state of roads. I, I got some information. A lot of it was just hugely accurate or what you might find on, on Google Maps or whatever, just very, very wrong. Um, and you know, so that's yeah, the, the kind of distances you might cover in one day after a couple of days, you, you realize these are pretty, pretty out. So you do just end up, you know, turning up where you turn up and, uh, and trying to find, uh, somewhere to stay. And then there, there were parts of it, especially Northeast India, where we were told, well, you know, you should probably get an armed escort to go through there. Um, and that was just something that, yeah, it was, well, how'd you go about doing that? And, uh, with everything else, we, we didn't really have time. So it was again, well, let's, let's get up there and see what the situation kind of is on the ground. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, in the end, I had the intention that a couple of maintenance lessons would be good <laughs> before we set off. But I, I don't know. I was just kind of, you know, occupied with, uh, with other, preparations trying to sort things out and it, it somehow just uh, it somehow just didn't happen 
I'm ashamed to say. No, well, it's, it's just interesting because, you know, a lot of times when people are prepping for a trip, that's part of the over preparation they do. They plan all the tools they're going to need and they pack everything um, up. Yeah. And it's kind of interesting because it's just like what you're saying, doing the English thing of bumbling along and figuring, <laughs> I'll figure it out. I'll, I'll, I'll sort it on the road. Yes, exactly. So it was, you know, well, well what's what's the worst that can happen? Right? We, we, we subsequently found that out. But um, the, I guess the thing, the different thing is that in that part of the world, uh, people tend to be very helpful, often, you know, official help, let's say that the state or the the police or this kind of thing don't work as well as they should. And a, a kind of product of that is your, your average citizen tends to be pretty helpful. And, you know, they look out for one another because they'd like other people to do that for them too, because there's no kind of, you know, social safety net as it were. So from past experience, I felt, well, you know, I, I think probably people will hopefully help us out if we need it. And, and the end field is pretty ubiquitous as a bike across India. So I was figuring like, you know, hopefully we'll just run into people who will, who will know how to fix it and, uh, and it'll be fine. That's a really interesting point you, you just made there about um, countries that where the, the infrastructure is not there, not not solid, and the people mm. pick up the slack. I mean, it explains a lot about why, I, you know, the ocean is kind of like that. You know, if one boater has a problem, another right. boater helps because help is so, you know, rare and so spread out. That's an interesting point to make that um, that that's why these people do this. It, I guess it's, it's, it's really bred into them, isn't it? It's not something you make a conscious decision about. It's the way it is. Absolutely. And I mean, some would argue, I guess, oh, you know, that's something in people are just nicer in that part of the world. But I mean, it's 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 a practical thing, too, is that, you know, I, I do that because I would like that to be done uh, to me. You know, if I'm if I'm in trouble, I would like sure. someone to help me out. So, I mean, I think that, you know, we never would have survived even the first few days on that trip had it not been for the kindness of strangers. I mean, you know, this, this was not a kind of, uh, you know, a heroic achievement of like, we made this on our own or whatever. No, I mean, it, it just would not have got past the, the first week, um, without, yeah, lovely, kind, generous people, uh, kind of saving our arts basically yeah and when they're doing it they're they don't feel they're doing anything spectacular they're, they're doing what they would do to anyone they meet along the road and do every day exactly and we you'd thank people and they'd say oh I, you know i know that if i was in uh, if i was in london and i broke down i'm sure you would you know you would <laughs> rush to help the poor indian person who doesn't speak a word of your language and is you know stranded on the side of the road and i was like well mate you know i wouldn't i wouldn't bet on it yeah. i'm sorry to say <laughs> that is bizarre isn't it and and again just by what you said you know you have the infrastructure in london so i guess if it happens in london you just figure well <laughs> deal with whatever's right. there and use the system yeah, and people presume you've probably got insurance or a breakdown service or you can, you know, call an Uber to pick you up and exactly. save you. Uh, there'll be a way out, yeah. Hey, what's the route you chose and, and what are the difficulties with it? And, and trying to, if you can describe it in a way for someone who doesn't know the area. Right, yeah. So uh, getting from Delhi to Burma, I mean, it wasn't the most direct route we took, but we wanted to visit a, a couple of neighboring countries on the way. So kind of the, the first was Nepal and the second was uh, Bhutan. Um, but to get to Nepal, we first had to go through a part of northern India called Uttar Pradesh, which is kind of its poorest state. It's, it's a fairly kind of uh, rough area, um, a fair bit of 
uh, a, a lot of poverty, a fair bit of criminality there. And from there, after getting through there, one crosses into uh, into Nepal. And Nepal is a bit of a mixed bag. It, it, it had a civil war which ended several years ago, and there's still a fair bit of unrest in parts of the south of the country where you have a kind of mix of kind of corrupt politicians and, uh, and mafia and different interest groups kind of struggling for power since the end of uh, the monarchy there. So there's a bit of a kind of bubbling uh, hot pot. Um, and then from there, we chose to kind of divert a bit north, uh, go back into India and up into uh, Sikkim, which is a state of India that, that used to be a kind of independent country uh, and is a quite a distinctive, uh, it was a Buddhist kingdom, in fact, has quite a distinctive uh, culture. So I went through there and then into Bhutan, um, which is this tiny country uh, sandwiched between China and India and a, a very kind of unique and magical place. Uh, it's they, they don't measure gross national product there. They measure gross national happiness. Uh, they've been ruled for many years by a benevolent king. And it, it's very much a kind of a, a beautiful, pristine, uh, mountainous kind of uh, fairy tale kingdom. So we were very keen to, to see that. And after that came, I guess, the most challenging bit, which was to get from Bhutan further eastwards down into uh, Burma. You have to cross through uh, northeast India. And that, that's a bit of India that most people don't even kind of know exists, I think, because you see the kind of familiar shape of India on the, on the map. And there's then this kind of little, uh, how to say, like umbilical cord that goes off to the east. And then this other kind of balloon of territory, which is northeast India. And there are towns there that amazingly are actually closer to Hong Kong than they are to Delhi, the Indian uh, capital. And that, that's an area where people have always felt very different from those in the rest of India. It's a tribal area. They've, they've been fighting mainly for independence or autonomy for India for many years. And there's a lot of unrest there, um, a lot of um, militant groups, a lot of criminality and smuggling across the Burmese border of drugs and guns. Um, so this is a, a very little visited place, but there was no option really if we wanted to get into Burma than, than to travel through there. And that's the area where when we went in Delhi to see the authorities and say, hey, we're, we're going to be traveling through this remote northeastern part of your country. Is that advisable? You know, they kind of said, well, not really, no. And, you know, we'd advise kind of an armed escort, um, which was also one of the failures of my preparations that I, uh, I hadn't organized one of them. Um, and from there, it was getting across the border into into Burma, and then the kind of travelling through the remote west part of Burma to uh, to get down to Rangoon. So a lot of a lot of issues, or a lot of potential issues along the route. I mean, it's, it's thirty seven hundred miles. I think is is what you said. The route that yeah, you chose, right. and basically, um, basically from Delhi, you're heading east. Uh, I guess until you get to Nagaland, and then you're you're sort of going south to Rangoon. Yeah, right, exactly. So it's kind of going east, going going up and down a bit to hit Nepal and Bhutan and uh and then getting then kind of getting to Nagaland, northeast India, and then taking a more kind of southerly direction to get all the way down and, and across the border and, and get down to uh, Rangoon. Yeah. So at the time you're you're living in Rangoon and you flew from Rangoon to start in Delhi. 
Yeah, that's right. So I was living in Rangoon, living in Burma, and I had the bike over in Delhi. And I thought, uh, yeah, let's. I, I want to drive it over. This will be fun. Um, so we we flew over, which was. Um, you know, which kind of makes a mockery of, of the, the two months that the trip took because in five, six hours, you know, you're covering that in this aircraft and kind of looking down, kind of wondering what's actually going to be on the ground uh, there when you're coming back by road and, and just thinking, is this a very, you know, stupid idea when there's much, you know, there's much easier ways to, <laughs> to make this trip. Yeah. Yeah, and also expose yourself to places that, um, uh, you know, that, that aren't seeing a lot of tourism, so to speak. Yes, absolutely. Which which can be a good and a bad thing, right? I mean, it it can lead to you know amazing experiences and uh, places that other people haven't seen, and where they are extremely welcoming to an outsider who's made the effort to go there. But there's the other side of the coin where people can treat you with uh, suspicion or fear or you know at at, at worst uh, aggression because they're not used to seeing foreigners and they're wondering you know what you might be doing there. Or, you know, they're just seeing you as a as a kind of target in that they will presume that if you are clearly foreign, Western and uh, traveling through uh, their part of the world in that way, that you're probably going to have, you know, a number of material goods on you and, you know, and, and a fair bit of cash. Um, and, and so it can make you a, you know, a target for for robbery or, or worse. You're loaded up on your Royal Enfield with your gear and this woman that you have with you, your girlfriend on the back. Yeah. Talk about your girlfriend. Yeah, that's um, that. That was an interesting one, I suppose. And I, I, I mentioned before, I was kind of trying to, in some ways, I suppose, you know, impress her and and cement this relationship. So she was someone I had met uh, living in Burma um, and a number of years younger than myself, um, but in fact uh, was or is a, a, a European aristocrats and had had a, a very kind of privileged upbringing and, and also an incredibly kind of adventurous life, um, was extremely intelligent, had three master's degrees uh, by her early 20s, had already lived in various countries over the world, had, uh, around the world, um, had been a, a chess, an international chess champion as a child, a, a very kind of, you know, smart, uh, accomplished person. Uh, but someone that after I kind of got together with, I always kind of struggled to really feel close to um, and was kind of looking for, you know, uh, kind of recognition or, you know, a, a confirmation that our relationship was uh, was really going somewhere. Um, and also someone that had, we, we traveled a little bit in Burma before we did the trip. I mean, someone who had very kind of little sense of fear, whereas I, I would tend to worry about things a, a fair bit and, and think, well, is this really a good idea? What might happen here? And she would kind of just jump in with, um, with both feet. So that's one of the reasons, I guess, that I thought, you know, such a trip would, would kind of um, appeal to her and, and really kind of make me a permanent uh, feature on her radar. Did you feel she was a little naive for travel? Yes, in some ways, I felt there was this this confidence, and she had done a lot of things. But I felt there were times where, you know, she would not really be aware of uh, when there was a you know a real danger out there, and that that could uh, lead to issues. And I suppose then it was also the idea right on the trip. You know, she'll she'll see that because we'll be pushing her boundaries as well, and. Um, 
she'll appreciate that a little bit more and I'll, I'll be the one, the slightly more mature one who'll be able to somehow, you know, get us out of uh, situations and, and bumble us through to the finish line. And that could be a personality uh, just difference, can it? Because the thing is with danger is danger has to be assessed and it's assessed subjectively. And then you decide there is danger, there's not. And it's totally on your own perspective, at least in a lot of cases. Yes, absolutely. And so you'll be in a situation where, you, you know, you do get out of this, you do, you do get out of it. And then one of you will say, well, it's good we got out then. And I was right to say, you know, we should, we should uh, drive out of that place. Those people look dodgy or whatever. And the other will say, well, you know, no, nothing actually happened. And, you know, your argument will be, well, it was about to. And, and theirs will be, well, you know, there, there is no evidence for, yeah. you know, for that view. Um, but yeah, whether it's paranoid or careful to say, well, it, it's good not to wait until something does, because if that's when you make the decision, it's, it's too late. You know, if you're already being kind of robbed or attacked, um, you know, you're a bit too late to, to react. But yeah, that was very much a kind of tension between us, I think, where I would be kind of, you know, worrying something's about to happen or we, we shouldn't go through this area, uh, or it, it's definitely time to move on here. And, uh, you know, she would, she would be very much well you know, it'll, it'll somehow be fine. And there is nothing to worry about. What was your plan for, for dealing with problems? You have some sort of backup plan. Do you have, are you carrying a satellite uh, transmitter? You know, what did you have? No, not, not really. I mean, and I guess that, you know, one of the most foolish things is when you do one of these trips and you're just on one bike, right? There is no one, that, there's no other vehicle you're kind of carrying with you that can, that can go on and, and, and go for help. Um, so, there wasn't. I mean, my experience from other places was was just, you know, kind of as you go along, you know, be, be cautious, see what happens. I mean, it, sometimes, yeah, there was no satellite phone. Sometimes you wouldn't have a phone connection. Um, and yeah, there were times when, you know, we, we got stuck out somewhere and, you know, there was no phone connection. It's it's kind of getting dark. And um, yeah, there, there is no one there to to help you. And that's, that's when you start thinking, you know, okay, the freedom of just being on one bike on your own is nice, but, um, you know, maybe next time, you know, having some friends with you would be a more, uh, a more kind of, uh, sensible idea. In hindsight, uh, now looking back at the adventure, where did the, where did the actual adventure really start after you left Delhi? Um, where did it really become an adventure? I guess, um, yeah, I mean, from from Delhi, we had a quick visit to the, to the Taj Mahal, and it was just after that when we got into uh, Uttar Pradesh in the north of India, uh, and there straight away you're onto very bad roads. I mean, it's we're talking potholes, dust, heat, um, and and just really bad driving. I mean, there is a kind of whole caste system in Indian driving that the motorcycle is pretty much at the bottom of, right? So the trucks and the buses have precedence, uh, you know. Then the, then the cars, and then beneath that is is the motorcycles. So people will you know come at you on the other side of the road when they're overtaking, just kind of expect you to, you know, to kind of pull over, which, which if you're on a little hundred CC bike is kind of possible, but on a loaded up, uh, Enfield, um, it's, it's simply not. So I think that was very much, you know, kind of, uh, the, the baptism of fire of getting into that kind of, uh, that kind of driving straight away. Um, and then we had it. Yeah, we had an incident, I think it was the second day in a remote area where we, we just pulled up and we were taking a break. 
and some a couple of guys uh, stopped and saw us stop by the side of the road, gathered around, phoned some of their friends. Other people came, and then there was before long this kind of group of guys, and they were all kind of. Um, uh, staring at, uh, at Rebecca, my partner, and, you know, the kind of comments being made. And then, you know, you start thinking, well, this could, this could go ugly quite quickly. And that's one of those situations where I was kind of like, well, I, you know, I think we should, we should kind of get out of here now. And, and she would be saying, well, you know, no, I think these guys, they're not, they're not yet <laughs> kind of physically threatening us, but you're saying, well, but you know, they're staring at us in what I find to be quite a, not friendly and in your case kind of lecherous manner um and, and so i think this is uh, you know it's time to move on um so i think yeah that was really the second day um and with that incident and then just the strain of driving that takes on your on your body to be uh aware the whole time driving very defensively looking out for all kinds of hazards in you know kind of 35 degree heat um and uh, a lot of kind of dust and uh, and noise, uh, you know, just realizing this this is gonna this is gonna take uh, quite some uh, energy to kind of keep doing this day on day for the next uh, couple of months. That story you just told about stopping, just go through that in a little more detail. What did you stop for to begin with? Well, we had been, as I say, it was our second day and we had been kind of estimating, you know, that the, the town that we wanted to get to by, by nightfall and it had been, it had been taking a lot longer than I had thought. And uh, this was a kind of standard feature of the trip. So I'd said, well, you know, we, we, we really shouldn't stop. We just need to go. And after a few hours, we were just exhausted. So we pulled up by the side of the road, uh, by a little river, just, you know, just to stretch our legs and so forth. And, uh, yeah, then, uh, you know, a guy kind of pulled up and, um, and, you know, I, I, I kind of say hi, wave, wave a hand, whatever. Um, and just very much saw the, you know, the attention was on my partner, not on me. And, uh, yeah you know, definitely a, a tall blonde lady is quite a rarity in those parts of the world. So you can understand there being, uh, some attention, but it's also a very, uh, it's a very conservative area where there would be normally very little contact between women and men who are not, um, uh, related or married. And, uh, yeah, I, I guess she was quite an attraction and I, I don't know for sure, but my impression was that this guy then had uh, messaged or called other people who then kind of, uh, showed up. And so I, uh, you know, I, I then try to make an effort of conversation. I mean, you know, my, my first instinct is normally to try and, you know, diffuse these things, make friends with people, try a little laughter and an attempt to charm and so I kind of said hi and, uh, you know, oh, this is, uh, this is a nice area. And, uh, the guy had, had had very limited English, but came back and, and said, oh, you know, this is a very dangerous place with a kind of little, I thought, sly smile on his face. And I was, you know, feeling, you know, okay, is he telling me this is a dangerous place because he and he, these other people are, you know, are here and we shouldn't feel very safe. And at that moment, uh, as I say, it was very, uh, it was very hot. And, uh, Rebecca then kind of had taken some sun lotion out and, and started just kind of, you know, 
putting her hand beneath my shirt and slapping it on my shoulders, which when the, when the wind had been blowing my shirt off were kind of sunburned. And this caused this kind of stir in the, in the little crowd of, you know, okay, there is this blonde woman and now she's kind of rubbing down this, <laughs> this guy, you know, here in this, uh, in the middle of the countryside. And you could see this, you know, this kind of murmuring and, uh, kind of very, uh, yeah, you know, kind of gesturing and, uh, cause, cause they're seeing that, it as sexual. Uh, yeah, because they were seeing this as a kind of sexual thing, and I mean, this is a part of the world where you, yeah, you, you know, you, you don't see. Uh, and I mean, Rebecca was not particularly exposed, but you know, she was not wearing a full sari or something like that. So you know, there was, you know, there was there was some some forearm and a bit of calf, I think, <laughs> showing which um, which can cause a, a bit of excitement in those parts. And um, just from being in, in, in South Asia before, I mean, I, I knew that, you know, these things can happen. I mean, overwhelmingly, India is a very friendly place, but you, you know, you do have an issue of, uh, of kind of sexual violence there and attacks that do happen. So um, that was, you know, that was kind of forefront in my mind and like, well, you know, we're very much kind of outnumbered here and, um, and it's time to leave. So, uh, yeah, that was one of the points where I was quite insistent with, uh, with Rebecca, like, you know, like, no, we have to kind of go now. And I remember as we were then pulling off, cause she was reluctant. She was like, no, these guys are fine. They're friendly. And, uh, as we were pulling away on the bike, she kind of just one, one of them reached his hand out to, 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 kind of touch her or shake her hand and, and she reached her hand back and, you know, seeing it's a friendly thing and kind of touched him. And there was this kind of roar from everyone and they kind of surged forward to, you know, to all try and grab her at that point, which was, you know, exactly when I kind of gunned the throttle and, uh, and kind of got out of there. Um, at which point she kind of nearly fell off the end of the bike. So I got a slap on the back of the helmet quite hard, uh, in reprimand for, for having done that. Uh, but I, you know, I felt I'd saved the day on the other hand. <laughs> It'd be scary. Yeah, that was, that, I mean, well, that, was that was quite scary. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but she didn't see it that way. No, she didn't see it that way. We just had one incident where I think she she kind of shared the the fear, which was um, we'd been we were in southern Nepal and um, we'd before that had one uh, incident where we'd ended up driving at night just due to kind of, you know, circumstances, lack of preparation. And the one thing everyone says is just don't drive at night. It's just, it's just too dangerous with, you know, these kind of bad road conditions. And you get a lot of bus and truck drivers on the road at night who, um, who drive for a living and are made to stay awake crazy hours. And because of that, take a variety of kind of legal and, and less legal stimulants to keep themselves going, uh, which makes their driving at best rather, rather erratic. Um, and we had once again kind of, you know, uh, done a false estimation of how long it would take us to get to our, our destination, been too optimistic. So we were driving at night and uh, a dog just run out in the middle of the in, in the road, and I kind of whacked on the brakes as hard as I could and skidded to a halt, and like just just missing the dog. Who I remember just kind of you know turned round and kind of looked at me nonchalantly, like you know what are you what are you doing? What's your what's your problem? And then skulked off. And at the same moment, then I heard this kind of you know this horn and swerving behind me, and this pickup truck swerved round us, and I realised ah oh, the guy must have been right behind us at the time when I'd suddenly had to break very, uh, you know, very sharply. So this guy just, just missed us. 
and I remember just kind of leading my head back to uh, to Rebecca and saying, "Oh, you know, wow, that was that was very close." And it was at that point we got kind of shunted very firmly from behind, and there there had been a, a another a little motorbike behind that truck. Who then the truck had pulled out and swerved, and that bike had just smashed right into the back of us. And we were actually fine, but the the bike was a bit smashed up, and the guys were off on the floor. So I, you know, immediately kind of. Um, um, kind of got off the bike and, you know, went to them to see if they're okay. And they got extremely uh, aggressive and they, they didn't really speak any English, but it was clear they felt it was, you know, it was my fault for having uh, braked very suddenly without a reason. I, I was trying to point to the dog, but the dog had already <laughs> had already kind of disappeared. So, you know, they were convinced that we'd, we'd done something wrong. And again, in an area of the world where it's overwhelmingly hospitable, normally there, there is a thing that there is this kind of um, culture sometimes of if there is a perceived wrong by someone, if, if someone is perceived to have stolen something, for example, or caused injury to another, that, that kind of group dynamic, which can be so nice when you're in trouble yourself, you get the other side of it where people can it, it, turn things into a kind of mob situation, mob aggression, mob, mob violence quite quickly. And these guys were, were getting extremely aggressive. And one of them was kind of grabbing my, my shirt and, you know, looked like he was about to uh, for a punch. So at that point I said to them, well, I'm just gonna, let me just park the bike signal pointed at the bike or park, you know, I'll park up by the side of the road and let's, let's talk about this. Um, but so I kind of got on the bike and, and said to Rebecca kind of hold on, um, and just, you know, went to the side of the road, but then kind of gunned the throttle and, and, uh, and got out of there. Um, because we were, you know, we were in the middle of a kind of dodgy area of Southern Nepal, which is kind of bandit country, with yeah two guys who were getting aggressive we you know there was no one out there to to help us in the middle of the night we didn't know what else might be around so it, it seemed the best thing to to make a run for it they kind of tried to to pursue us and we we ended up uh in the end kind of bolting after a bit down a little back street kind of hiding the bike somewhere and then finding a little tea shop, uh, you know, away from the road where we couldn't be seen. And I, you know, remember at that point when we, we kind of sat down, had some tea and a cigarette that, uh, you know, then Rebecca was like, oh my God, that, you know, that felt really aggressive, like something was going to happen. And, you know, I, I probably would have frozen in that situation. Like, you know, I think you did the right thing. So I think that that was one of the points where it felt like, okay, I, I'm kind of been validated <laughs> in my approach here. And it's nice to see her finally scared for once. You know, I, I don't want this stuff to happen more but there is a kind of positive takeaway when it does and 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 you know also that i can i can portray you know running away as 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 the good thing to do that saved us <laughs> yeah what's the what's the the deal with that though i mean how does that get sorted out you know how it is in, in developed countries something happens they say well this is the law you know you were following too closely that's not the case there then <sighs> No, it normally tends to be um, a, 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 if a foreigner isn't involved and someone who doesn't uh, speak the local language and you happen to, for example, hit a, someone's chicken or someone's dog or, or something like that, it's it's normally going to be seen as your fault and you're going to have to pay some uh, you're going to have to pay some compensation. Um, so it's a part of the world where, you know, not in all cases, but often it's going to be more hassle to, to call the police and, you know, the police may have to be, you know, paid off or it may just be very difficult to, to contact them, but it, it might cause a lot more bureaucracy, um, than you'd, than you would like to get them involved. And so people tend to settle things, uh, between themselves. 
and quite a yeah black and white sense of uh, morality i think tends to spring up there uh, and of, of indignation um and you know you're you're a foreigner you're a guest in my country you've done something wrong you have driven in an irresponsible way you know you've caused an accident you know you're going to you're going to pay for this and you know, I'll say it again, I mean, overwhelmingly amazing hospitality that more than makes up for anything like this. But I think in that case, it was someone who probably also sees, right, I'm, you know, I'm going to get money off these, uh, off these guys. Um, and you know, here is, here is my opportunity because they're, they're going to be pretty defenseless. They're out here in the, in the middle of the night. Uh, they don't know the area and, you know, no doubt the guy had friends and family, uh, and backup kind of, um, kind of nearby. So yeah, that's the, I guess that's the flip side of when the, uh, <laughs> when the infrastructure isn't there. We're going to take a quick break to thank a couple of sponsors to help bring this episode to you. But when we come back, we're going into Bhutan and, um, you're going to hear about a, a religion that, um, worships something that, Oh, how do I put this? That, um, that, uh, well, it's part of the anatomy. Ah, you're just going to have to stick around for this. How does this sound? California Lost Coast Dual Sport Motorcycle Tour. Yeah. I'm in. Well, that's just one of the tours that Carrie Doherty is, is running at Motobird Adventures. Motobird Adventures is motorcycle tours for women by a woman. Motobird has a, a full lineup of adventures from dual sport to pavement only trips. These trips are designed for women, but that doesn't mean a guy can't go. If you're a guy, um, you can sign up with a, a friend, girlfriend, wife. Uh, you could even take your daughter on what could be a bonding trip of a lifetime. And that could really be something. And Carrie has lots of experience. She runs the tours. She's done all kinds of uh, trips on her own, including long distance trips. Drop by the website and see what everybody's talking about. It's motobirdadventures.com. And, and be sure anytime you, you call or email or you're talking to Carrie, make sure you tell her that you heard her here on Adventure Rider Radio. Again, the website is motobirdadventures.com. You know, arguably the most important connection between you and your motorcycle are your handlebars and your foot pegs. Yet the foot pegs are often ignored or even worse, sometimes replaced with substandard ones. Because there's more to a, a foot peg, an aftermarket foot peg, than just a wider platform. It, it not only needs to be built tough, I mean really tough, because the last thing you want is a peg to fail on you. But they need to be designed in certain ways to allow your foot to pivot properly, to catch a gear and brake lever, to allow them to fold up properly when they bump up against something. All things that are, are found on quality foot pegs. The pegs I use and abuse a lot are IMS products. IMS has been making hard parts for motorcycles since 1976, and they've now got a complete line of pegs for adventure motorcycles. Um, drop by their website, look at what they've got for you, www.imsproducts.com. And anytime you're talking with them, uh, emailing, phone, whatever, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Again, www.imsproducts.com. One of your your side trips, if I could call it that, you know, off the beaten track, so to speak, because there's a lot of routes you could take between these places. Am I right? 
Yeah, right. It's exactly. a lot of a lot of different routes you could have taken, but one of the ones you went into Bhutan. Why Bhutan? Bhutan, I've just found a, a fascinating uh, country. It's this hidden kingdom. You have like massive China to the north, like huge India to the south, and you have this little this little kingdom, and it's it's called in the local language the Kingdom of the Thunder Dragon. I mean, who would not want to go visit the Kingdom of the Thunder Dragon, right? Yeah. And uh, it's this uh, mountainous little kingdom, and it's it's run it's it's uh, been run for centuries um, by a line of monarchs, and the monarchs actually had to kind of force democracy on their people a few years ago because um, the people were just very happy with how how they'd been treated. It's one of the most developed countries in the region. It's uh, never been colonized. Uh, amazing, very friendly people and a, a very kind of um, unique culture um, where they, they value Buddhism and, and happiness um, above kind of economic growth. But at the same time, you know, you have schools, you have hospitals, you have, I wouldn't say amazing roads, but you, you have kind of an okay infrastructure, you have kind of decent security. Um, and just kind of a, a, a fascinating kind of untainted uh, South Asian culture, where they've, which, which they've really tried to preserve by making it quite hard to visit the country. So, you know, you normally have to have someone to escort you around and you have to pay a certain amount of, uh, of money a day to, uh, to, to kind of visit there. Um, so it's somewhere not, not so many people get to visit. Um, so yeah, particularly, you know, a fascinating place to be able to, to ride a motorcycle through and just a lot less crazy than somewhere like, uh, India or, uh, or Nepal. Uh, tell us a little bit more about the culture in Bhutan. I, I know there were some things that were rather distinct. Yeah. I mean, so we, we got there the first night and the first thing I like to do getting to new countries is go to the bar, right? And um, we, we got to the bar and they told us that um, there's no alcohol served on uh, in, in the bar tonight. And we said, well, why not? And they said, well, because it's Tuesday. And we said, okay, what's the issue with Tuesday? And, and they said, well, you know, we just, we think it's good to have a day of the week when alcohol is, is not served. Uh, so, you know, we, we kind of accepted that and thought it was kind of cute. And then we, we started asking about other special traditions they had and days. And they, they had a number of interesting ones uh, throughout the year, kind of religious holidays, etc. And then I think my, my favorite and the cutest was that they had a, a dedicated day at the beginning of the monsoon that was called Blessed Rainy Day, which, uh, which, which I found very charming. But it was really probably the, the next day, the next morning that the most striking thing was kind of thrust into my face um, as we were driving through our first little village on the bike. And there was a colorful motif on the side of our house. And I just you know, I thought that looks very much like something a little bit naughty. And then we carried on and we got to the next village and, and there was another one and then another one. And there were these massive Technicolor penises that were painted on to the side of almost every building. Penises. And, uh, penises, yeah. Like um, real penises. Like, I mean, we're like, talking... Like, I'm Penis. talking real kind of anatomically correct, um, <laughs> often in the, the act of, uh, uh, of uh, full uh, pleasure. Um, so you'd have the drawing on the side of the house um, of a, you know, an anatomically realistic penis. And these, these were traditional houses. This was not graffiti. I mean, these were, you know, professionally done kind of hand 
painted uh, images. And then we started also to notice at the entrance of, of some houses, there were also kind of wooden penises hanging down. So I, I had to ask someone about this, and we we found out that it was it was due to a, a Bhutanese uh, saint, a guy called uh, Truk Kunli, who lived several hundred years ago, and he had kind of said, well, this whole thing with Buddhism that you know in Buddhism they say desire is a bad thing, right? You've got to renounce desire. Um, you shouldn't be attached to it. But he'd said, well, you can also get kind of attached to not being attached to stuff. If you're beating yourself up about not having a drink or not having sex, I mean, this is as bad as, as doing it. So he, to prove this, he was very kind of free spirited and he kind of drunk and fornicated his way across, uh, Bhutan and, and became also a kind of famous religious teacher at the same time. And was said to have a number of magical powers, which uh, which rested in his uh, in his phallus. And so there are uh, a number of stories uh, in Bhutanese uh, religious texts and folklores about him curing people or uh, removing demons from valleys and mountaintops uh, using what they termed his. Uh, his flaming thunderbolt of diamond wisdom, um, or in other words, his uh, his penis. Um, so we, we found this quite uh, quite fascinating. But it, it got a little personal one day when we went to we went to visit a monastery, and we were there with the abbot who'd taken us in and was showing us around. And uh, then I, I saw the name of Drupka Kunli up and uh, on, on, on the wall beneath an old painting. And, uh, and I said, oh, so is, are you connected with, with this guy? And he said, yeah, yeah, this was his local monastery. And I said, oh, is it, you know, he's a fascinating chap. Um, and, uh, you know, we've been very interested to see um, all around the country how fondly he is commemorated. Then the abbot said, um, yeah, and a lot of people actually come to the monastery here because we, we bless them here and it, it's it's good for good luck and especially to help with their fertility because of the, um, you know, the association between Druk uh, Kunli and, uh, well, the sexuality, basically. So he said, you know, would you like a blessing? And we said, oh, absolutely, that's, that's very kind of you. And then he kind of, he reached uh, under his robes and pulled out a, uh, a large wooden penis and, uh, and then kind of knighted us both with it, um, which was, yeah, possibly the, I think that, you know, the strangest blessing that I have, uh, that I have ever received. Um, you also mentioned that instead of uh, measuring gross national product, they measure gross national happiness. Now, that is a, a very interesting, a very Buddhist, I guess, a concept. Yeah, that's right. So they had this this Buddhist tradition and they said, well, you know, economic growth is not everything. So we're going to look overall at the um, at the happiness of the people instead. And, and that's what's important. And, you know, we're not just going to look at how much money people are making or how the economy is uh, doing. We're going to, you know, we're going to see if, if people are really content and uh, we're also going to conserve the uh, environment. So they have a law that you're not allowed to chop down any trees and you're not allowed to uh, kill any animals. Uh, for example, um, so it's quite a quite a different uh, approach to what we're used to. I think in uh, you know in kind of governance uh, the, to what we have in the West. Yeah, it, it sounds kind of utopian. I, I guess with it, I mean, you know, you mentioned it's it's developed. Are they travelers? Or are they the people who live there traveling around their own country? Because it seems like there's an awful lot of national parks and, and sanctuaries. Uh, there, there are. I mean, I think that that's more from a sense of just wanting to, you know, preserve this natural heritage and have a kind of a Buddhist respect, I think, for nature, like an overwhelming respect for nature. But they have um, they have several national parks. And, and one of my 
favorite things, and I, I don't want your listeners to think I'm too crazy, but is I, I developed a fascination for the Yeti on this trip, or the the abominable uh, snowman. And uh, Bhutan, I think, is probably the only country in the world that has a national park that's actually dedicated to protecting the Yeti. So uh, the government and most of the people are fully believe that this creature exists and lives in remote parts uh, of the mountains and have set off a part of the country which won't be developed um, because they don't want to encroach on what they believe is its, uh, is its um, natural, um, natural uh, living area. So did you see a Yeti while you were there? We didn't see a Yeti. Uh, I, I got quite interested in stories about them and researching them and finding that there was, yeah, there were quite a lot of people who said they had. And I was asking about it a lot in Bhutan. And, and basically, you know, people just accepted this as true. And they said, look, I mean, there's these super remote areas. I mean, um, and I have a friend or my grandfather or my friend's cousin or whatever. Yeah, you know, they are a yak herder. They're up in these remote areas. And, you know, the more kind of the remote the area you got to, um, the more this was, this was just an accepted thing, that there are these these creatures kind of um, uh, living up there in, uh, you know, in, in the high mountains in the snows. And everyone kind of knows someone who, who has some kind of experience uh, to tell about them. So I think definitely, you know, a future trip to go to go back up there and uh, hunt a little bit more fervently, uh, maybe on foot uh, to see if one could find them. We'd, we'd, that would be an interesting next trip, I think. Mm, you, when you say hunt, you mean look, not actually hunt. Yes. Of course, because you can't <laughs> hunt there. No, exactly. That would that would get you in trouble with the authorities. That right. you're you're not allowed to uh, kind of harm or or kill um, any living thing. Yeah. Hey, well, if they're not killing anything and they're not cutting any trees, what's Bhutan known for? So they have uh, a bunch of uh, herbs that they are exporting. They also have a bunch of rivers, which means they have hydropower, which they can uh, which they can sell to their neighbor India. So they get they get quite a lot of um, money from that. Uh, and then, you know, a lot of people are basically doing um, subsistence uh, farming. But you do, you know, you have a functioning state that's able to take care of its people and kind of provide education, healthcare and, and security. So even without, you know, some large scale industry or this kind of thing, um, yeah, they, they do seem to be doing okay. And then the tourists that they do let in they they go for kind of the higher end of the market um and you know generally kind of uh charge them a lot of money to come into shangri-la um and uh, and get their revenue that way uh, during the whole route what's the most remote part would that the most remote and i guess sort of risky would, would that be nagaland yeah i guess that would be nagaland which is which is part of that northeast india area uh which has always been a, a pretty lawless. I mean, it's an area that was was famed for years for headhunting and, and people living in small villages on the hilltops, which would be kind of protected by a palisade, which would be kind of topped with with the heads you'd chopped off, um, often from you know from people just from the neighbouring village. So a huge you know suspicion of the outsider, uh, and, and even kind of you know one village would speak a different language from the next one. And so that the Brits, when uh, when they were in India, had tried to go into that area and also kind of take it over and, and were basically, you know, repelled by the locals and said, well, this is more trouble than it's, than it's worth. 
Um, but since the, I guess, 1950s, the Brits had actually ended up kind of paying some of the tribes there to to kill any Japanese people they came across during the Second World War when, when Japan and, and the Allies were fighting in that part of the world and had promised the people of Nagaland independence after that. But but when India became independent itself, um, this didn't happen. And, and then the tribes in this area kind of started fighting against the Indian uh, state, which kind of still goes on to this day. And that just led to a lot of lawlessness in general and a lot of groups that operate there I mean, really outside of the law in, in name are still independence movements, but are often involved in, uh, in criminal activities from, you know, extortion to smuggling, uh, drugs and guns and, and this kind of thing. So we were very nervous about, I was very nervous about going through that area. Uh, we could have avoided the main part of it by going a slightly different route, but, uh, but, but Rebecca thought, you know, this, this is a fascinating area and, you know, we must, we must go through there. And I, I remember like reading up on the headhunting and, and the first thing I'd read was that this had stopped like 50 years ago. And then I found another article saying, no, I mean, there was still, you know, uh, the last case was kind of 20 years. And, and so it went on and, and until I kind of read that, you know, it might still be practiced in some places. So I was, I was pretty nervous, uh, going in there. And then we ended up one day with a particularly horrendous, I mean, I can't call it a road. It was a track through a drunk jungle, which was full of, uh, kind of, thigh high uh water filled trenches and uh it, it was a quagmire for most of the journey um through thick jungle um and just just incredibly difficult difficult terrain and then it, it started getting dark there and we you know very much feared we would be kind of just stuck out in the jungle at night we had no camping equipment and then it's the kind of area where you just don't know who's out there. And I mean, we hadn't, the only people we'd seen all day was we'd turn a corner at one point. Um, and there was, uh, a Jeep from, uh, a paramilitary group that actually works for the Indian state, but, uh, but are known to, let's say, do their, do their own thing in many ways. Um, and not kind of really be the people you would go to if you had a problem. And they, uh, had like four guys at gunpoint, uh, lined up against some, some trees with their hands up, you know, no idea kind of what was, what was going on. Something was going down. And I mean that they were the only, you know, kind of people we hit past during the day. And we, we just, I really didn't want to get caught out there. So that was, I think that was, you know, that was the scariest moment of, of the trip, just the sun going down and being in this dense jungle with a horrendous road, um, the bike starting to perform badly just had had enough, I think, and thinking we're going to be stuck out here tonight in this, you know, in this jungle with God knows who kind of out there on our own, you know, without any kind of, uh, protection. And as you said, you have no camping gear, no nothing. No camping gear. Yes. No, uh, no shelter, um, I, mean, I guess you don't really need camping gear. I mean, what would you need, really? I guess you could a tarp would probably suffice. A tarp or a mosquito net. I mean, exactly, just to protect from the from the in, in, insects. So, I mean, the temperature is not an issue. I mean, the main thing is really just you know who who might be around at night and you know who might chance upon you or whatever. Um, uh, and then, of course, you know, getting 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 some food and and sustenance. Yeah, because so, you were staying in accommodations the whole way. I was going to say hotels, but I wouldn't say all of it's hotels. 
not all of it was uh, not all it was hotels. Yeah, we were. You know, we kind of figured even in most places, you, there'll be somewhere where you can um, you can put up for the night. And there were occasions where there were incredibly nice, you know, beautiful places, and you're very surprised. And there were, you know cases where you know you're in a, a really kind of filthy dive of a place where you know the the shower and the toilet are are, are a kind of combined uh, unit that everyone is using um you know you have a kind of bare bulb and a kind of very stained mattress and it's it's full of uh, mosquitoes and um and strange smells and you just you just kind of want to get out of there as you know as soon as you can the next morning how do you feel though when you stay in places like that? I mean, that place you described—I think you you stayed in one. There was a diesel generator outside, and that that yellowy mattress, and the rust, and the peeling paint, and a bulb hanging from the ceiling, and a shared washroom. What do you think when you're staying in a place like that? You just want to kind of get out and back on the road, I think, and hope that the next day will be better. And it's just, you know, you're, you're, you're exhausted. You've been in the saddle for many hours. Um, it's like, okay, we, you know, we, we put our head down and, um, you know, we do, we get the, the bare minimum of sleep we need and we get out of here the next day and, and hope that it's better. And I mean, that's one of the nice things about being on the road, I guess, you know, you know, you're, you know, at least you're moving on the next day and you're not obliged to spend more than one night there. Was there a point on the trip, like one point in particular, maybe where it really struck you that this is really what you wanted? This this is the like sort of the most amazing thing you've come across? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, for all of the hardships, um, often that the hardships were followed by the most beautiful moments. And that day when we were stuck in the jungle in Nagaland, um, as the sun was going down, we we turned a corner and saw some wood smoke and saw ah there's you know there's a village and uh, stopped in the village and we're trying to ask people you know well how far is it to get to the place we're trying to get to and then they were saying oh it's it's going to be like nine hours (laughs) okay it's you know it's almost 6 p.m you know what are we going to do um and someone then, uh, or a lady in the village, just signaling to us and saying, "Like, come and come and stay at my house." And so, within an hour, going from complete hopelessness, stuck in the jungle, to sitting around, uh, you know, an, an open pit fire in her small hut uh, with her elderly mother, kind of cooking up some rice and and chicken, and you know, a bunch of friendly kind of villagers coming in to look at us and just feeling, you know incredibly welcome and, and, you know, having an experience being in a place that very few other foreigners, uh, ever would, and kind of waking up there the next morning with beautiful views over the hills, um, and mountains and these people who were strangers, you know, insisting that they make us breakfast and then the whole village kind of coming out to, to see us off. So, you know, that, that, that kind of thing is something you'll, you'll, uh, you'll never, forget and this this just kind of beauty and the hospitality of people and being in an area in a place that very few other people will get to see you know mainly because it is extremely uh difficult to get there in the first place do you keep in touch with those people it's it's tricky because we're talking about areas where you don't really have uh you know cell phone connections or internet connections people don't have uh computers i mean it's the kind of place they think if you did turn up in again you know people would people would remember you you could say like oh, i was you know i was the, i was the guy who came through a little while back and i mean that that was brought home to me actually because as we were we were sitting around the um the fire in the evening and 
most of the villagers couldn't speak any English, but there was an old fellow who came in and I, I guess he was in his, his eighties, you know, with, with those kind of gnarled hands of someone who spent years doing physical labor, but, but still a glint in his eye. And he, and he spoke kind of passable English and he, he sat down next to me and he put his hand on my knee and he was starting to talk about the history of, of Nagaland and saying, you know, we're misunderstood how we're headhunters and we just wanted our independence. And it's, you know, it's because of Britain and your country, you know, you promised us that. And I was thinking, oh my God, where is this going? And, you know, kind of apologizing for, for what my country had done and not, not following through on its, uh, its promises. Um, before it uh, it moved out of India in in 1947, um, and then he was kind of saying, no, no, we understand, you know, that your um, that your king is very busy, and he clearly had the idea that there was still this, you know, British Empire, and we were still very powerful in the world, and you know, we still had a king, not a queen, and he actually had handwritten a a letter, which he then asked me to to give to my king. Uh, uh, pleading uh, the cause of Nagaland independence and saying, you know, we're, we're still here and we think you've forgotten about us. So could you, you know, could you please do something about this? And, you know, this was a guy who'd been for 50 years, uh, you know, hoping, striving, dreaming for the independence of the place where he lived. Um, and obviously not very up on, you know, world events and what was happening. But yeah, he gave me this letter to to deliver to my king asking that uh, he remember Nagaland and and take up the issue with the uh, with the Indian government which is one of the you know I think most touching uh, moments uh, of of the trip and really um really says something about the remoteness I think of the area yeah and you you realize that as well like when you ask people how long is it going to take to get to this place? So where is this place that, you know, we're, we're so used in our lives to traveling, it being quite normal to travel big distances. But in these areas, you know, travel is a hardship. Travel is something you do because you really have to. I mean, it, it's difficult. Uh, it, it takes time. It's kind of painful. Um, and people just wouldn't know, you know, even the, the, you know, the town that was kind of 50 miles away and they'd have, you know, they would estimate that, oh, that, that's, that's half an hour and it would end up being kind of five hours or something. And it, you, you end up realizing you should only ask kind of truck drivers because they're the ones who have some experience that other people tend to very much, you know, stay in the areas where they were born. That's, that's where they are working. That's where they're farming. That's where they're taking care of their families. Um, you know, and they kind of won't travel unless they, really have to and uh, again it's it's pretty tough you've not got a nice train to get on or you've not got a tarmac road or something like this you know you're you're talking about kind of bumping for hours over uh over a track uh through a jungle or or through the mountains um so this is you know this is not seen as a kind of pleasurable thing to do which which also you know means people think you're a little bit crazy when you (laughs) when you turn up and they see you and say well you know you're a rich westerner and you're you're doing this for fun i mean what is what is wrong with you? <laughs> yeah, and and at one point you were in a juxtaposition to this story that you just told. You were at a remote spot where you thought you were probably the or possibly the first Englishman to have visited. Yeah, and this this was one of the points where I think uh, Re- Rebecca was kind of laughing at my my petty need for validation. But I, I kind of like the idea to think I may be you know the first person to uh, to visit a place. So we were we were sitting in a in a small village, and uh, I'd, I'd said to the person that we'd met there, um, you know, I, I presume I'm the first uh, Englishman ever to, to come here, right? 
and uh, she kind of laughed and um, and said to me, um, "Oh, do you know Gordon Ramsay? Gordon Ramsay, the famous TV chef." And I kind of I, I I laughed because it often happened on the trip that when people know you're British, they will name the one British person they know, which is normally David Beckham. And say, well, you know, you you must know him, right? And you you know, you kind of have to explain. Well, there's there's like sixty million people in the UK. It's not like in your village. I don't know everyone who's you know who's who's from there, kind of thing. So I kind of laughed and said, like, oh, you know, no, I don't, uh, I don't know Gordon Ramsay. He's, um, uh, you know, he's not a personal acquaintance. And um, she uh, she shot back. Um, well, you know, he was uh, he was here a couple of months ago. And I kind of looked at her, and my, my jaw dropped. And I was like, "No, come on, we're in the middle of nowhere, up in northeast India in the hills. This is, you know, this is impossible. What what are you talking about?" And you know, just thought she was a bit kind of deluded. Um, and, and at which point, uh, the second surprise was that she actually turned out to have an iPad, which was which was rather bizarre. Um, pulled it out and, and showed me a video, and sure enough, they had shot a kind of I think it was a wild cooking or remote cooking, and uh, he was up there in you know in the, in the very same village, kind of learning some uh, local recipes, and had been out hunting with the locals and was was cooking some roast boar or something. So I mean, I was I was extremely uh, I was extremely crestfallen at that moment. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's that's got to be the worst. It's bad enough to hear that another person has been there before you, but to have it as a celebrity and a big filming thing, yeah, you know, that's a that's a bit much. But you, you wrote your story into a book called "The Wrong Way Round: How Not to Travel to Burma by Motorcycle." How not to travel to Burma by motorcycle? Yeah. This is this is like an anti-travel book. Well. Yeah, I mean, it was, you know, after the, after having done the trip, I mean, people ask you about it, people were kind of interested in it and saying, well, that's, you know, but you're like, the, you know, the first people to actually have, have done that trip and have, have crossed that border, which you had to get special permission to do and this and that. And so, uh, yeah, in the end, I, I thought, yeah, let, let's let's give this a bash. And I'd been inspired, you know, reading and watching the documentary, uh, The Long Way Round with, with Ewan McGregor. So I I thought, yeah, this was very much the wrong way around. I mean, because I remember them being very well prepared and you know, and, and being proper bikers and having protective equipment and a backup team and all this kind of stuff. And I just thought, well, this is really the kind of antithesis of this, how I have done this, this trip, the kind of the accidental uh, bumbling version, you know, of kind of if someone was planning it, you know, all the things they would probably say uh, not to do. Um, that I did. So that's, uh, yeah, that's where, that's where the title came from. So looking back on this adventure now in hindsight, and certainly you've had lots of time writing a book, thinking about it and thinking about what it means to you and everything. What did you learn from all of this? Well, what did you take? What's your take from it? I think the overall, despite some of the, you know, the things I've, the, the stories I've told and that are in the book about the bad stuff that happened, the scary stuff, which is, you know, what, what people kind of like to hear about is exciting. Um, uh, the scrapes you get into, um, was, was just the kindness of strangers. Um, you know, that I was right in thinking before the trip, you are not cut out to do this and you will not make this alone. And I, I couldn't have done so, but the kindness of, of people from, I mean, the, the farmer in Burma who see me who saw me kind of stopped before a, a massive uh, trench that the road had degenerated into and then waded through it without saying a word to find the shallowest path and then indicated to me you know now now you can kind of go through I mean th- this kind of thing to 
uh, motorcycle clubs in India that would hear about our trip and turn up outside a town somewhere to escort us in and provide security, you know, for us and then take us around just because we were bikers uh, to, to two priests who stopped and saw us broken down on the road and, and fixed our exhaust for us. I mean, this kind of thing was, was amazing. So just having more faith in, in people, I think, you know, that these are dangerous areas, but overwhelmingly people are uh, amazing. People are friendly. People are kind, you know, they outnumber the, the bad people. Having said that, another takeaway would be do get some mechanical knowledge. I mean, learn how to (laughs) fix a puncture. What were you thinking? Um, probably take take a second bite think about who you travel with i mean you know if you're not fully getting on with someone you have some issues in the dynamic of your relationship this probably isn't uh isn't going to solve it so i think no know someone pretty well before you go or, or on a trip with them i mean otherwise you, you will get to know them very well for uh for good or, or for bad but i mean overall i you know i definitely wouldn't turn the, the, the clock back i mean i'd say just do it i mean you you know you probably should prepare a bit more than i did but i think you never feel fully prepared for such a trip and lots of unexpected stuff is going to happen which which at the end of the day is kind of the beauty of adventure, I guess. Well, the a big part of the trip, as you said, was to woo this woman that you're with, um, was to impress her. Whether you accomplish that or not, I'm going to leave uh, for the <laughs> listener to read in the book, <laughs> The Wrong Way Round, How Not to Travel to Burma by Motorcycle. Andy, great to talk to you. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. I've been speaking with Andy Benfield. The book about this adventure that he wrote is called The Wrong Way Round, How Not to Travel to Burma by Motorcycle. Of course, a link will be in our show notes along with a photograph of the book. And uh, I think you can get this book anywhere books are sold. I just want to remind you that this episode has been brought to you in part by Max BMW Motorcycles at www.maxbmw.com. Also, Best Rest Products at www.cyclepump.com and Green Chili Adventure Gear at greenchiliadv.com. Hey, you do us a great favor. If anytime you're dealing with these companies, anytime you see them anywhere, you mention that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Hey, thanks a lot for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show as much as we did producing it. Special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin. And of course, you, the listener, thank you very much. Hey, help spread the word. Tell your friends, tell your family, tell any other riders you know about the show. And drop by Facebook and in particular iTunes and give us a rating on iTunes. Let them know what you think of the show. Of course, I'm looking for a five-star review here. Anyway, time to get out there and ride your bike. And hey, if you're not doing it already, drop by the website and click on the support button because we need you to support the show. It's built on a model of advertising and listener support to make the show work. Thanks a lot. See you next week. My name's Jim Martin. Get out there and ride your bike. Hi, this is Gina Marie Austin from twowheel2feet.com and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. (laughs) 